You probably have a favorite Christmas carol or a Christmas song. It might be uh, a religious song. It might be uh, a secular song that we sing about the holidays, something that brings joy to your heart or a sense of, uh, of happiness about this time of year. Maybe it's a sentimental song. Maybe it's, it's something that tugs at your heartstrings. It's one of those kinds of songs that, uh, that I think has become one of my favorites. Something that uh, David Foster and uh, Linda Thompson Jenner wrote more than 20 years ago, probably more like 30 years ago. And a number of artists have recorded it, though probably, I suspect, Amy Grant's recording might be the most popular. And, um, but it's, it's a song that just grabbed me the first time I heard it and has continued to since. And um, it, it goes like this. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you of childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown up now. I still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. Not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart. That wars would never start, and time would heal all hearts. And everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. This is my grown-up. Christmas list. The words of that song, I think, echo in the heart of all of us. You might, you might not agree with the whole, you know, sending letters to Santa thing. But there is something beautiful, something in our hearts about a world in which No more lives are torn apart. A world where wars don't start. A world where hearts are healed. A world of love and compassion. And I think that's in somewhere in the heart of every single person. Because God put it there. God didn't create us to to live in conflict with each other. God didn't create us to start wars. God didn't create us to hurt one another. God didn't create us to, to live in loneliness. God created us to flourish. It is when sin entered the world that all that God had created began to to be twisted and turned and skewed and hurt and pain and conflict, all of that came into existence because we sinned. And ever since that day in the Garden of Eden, we have been trying to to remedy that. 
We've been working over and over and over again to try to find an answer to that. And we keep failing. And God knows that. That's why Jesus comes. And what I find fascinating about the prophecies is that it creates an image of a world of what happens when Jesus comes. And Isaiah 11 is one of those images. It's an image of that day. It's an image when God brings, ushers in his kingdom in all of his fullness. It's a day when, when everything is put to right. That day when Jesus will reappear. And on that day, there will be restoration. All the things that, all the hurt and the pain and the struggles, there will be, will be restored. And I love the image that Isaiah paints for us here. He talks about what's going to happen with creation. And how animals, who are, we call natural enemies, are going to be friends. Lions, lamb, existing together in peace. Children playing at the nests of, of cobras and not being hurt. All of, of creation restored. It surprises me when I start when I think about it that the first thing Isaiah says, the first image he gives us of restore of the restoration of of that on that day is creation. I would have thought it would be human beings. I think there's something significant about starting with creation. I think it tells us that that we are not the only thing, the only beings that God cares about and loves. God loves all that he has created. Every single part of God's creation, he loves and he is going to restore it. And it says something to us about our image of what, the, what that day and what that life in that day is going to be like. Because we've had a tendency to think of it as sort of something out there. But Isaiah paints a picture of something right here. New heaven, new earth, restored. Restored to what God intended from the very beginning. And, in, and creation will be restored. And I wonder if it isn't... If creation isn't mentioned first, because until creation is made right, it seems impossible that anything else could be made right. To think that human beings might live in right relationship with each other, but all of creation's in chaos, doesn't feel like that's going to work. But once creation is restored and peace has come to creation, then we have a place of safety and security and peace for human beings to live. But he goes on, he talks about in verse 10, about how the nations will come to God's glorious land. He, talks, he says that, that there will be a, a banner. This heir of David's throne will be a banner to all the nations and they will all come to him. And that word banner sometimes is translated signal. And I have in my mind this big neon sign saying, y'all come, you're welcome. I love you, I want you. You know, it, sometimes I think we have a, we get so wrapped up in thinking about who's in and who's out and making those judgments about people. We forget God wants everyone to come to him. 
God wants all people to come to him. He created every person to know him and to be known by him and to find joy and peace and life in him. And this is an invitation to every person, every nation. Not everyone's going to accept it. Some people are going to reject it, but it's not because God doesn't want it. I think it reminds us that just as how God feels about creation ought to say something to us about how we treat creation, so the invitation to all the nations ought to say something to us about how we view people in other cultures, people who see things differently than we do. I, I often get convicted, and I know that I'm not in the right place toward other people when I have a hard time believing that that person could teach me anything. And sometimes we do that about people who have differences of opinions. Sometimes it's about people of different nations, maybe different races, whatever the case may be, all the ways in which we divide ourselves. We know that we are not seeing people the way God does when we have come to the conclusion that that person could not possibly teach us anything. Because the subtle underlying assumption is, I'm better than they are. I'm more valuable than they are. I'm more important than they are. And that is not how God sees the world. God loves all people. He wants all people to come to him. And Jesus is the banner, the beacon, the signal to say, come. And then he finally gets to God's people. And he talks about how Israel and Judah are going to be reunited. They went through a civil war and, and uh, became enemies of one another. And eventually, a couple hundred years later, the Assyrians sack Israel and, and Samaria. And, and their, the Assyrian way of... of keeping their hold on the nations they conquered was to displace about two-thirds of the people to all kinds of other nations where they had conquered and bringing in people from all those other nations and planting them into the nation, to that nation they had conquered. And so you had the nation of Israel that was maybe a third Jewish and two-thirds all kinds of other things, and they intermarried with each other, and they became, uh, they became a, a mixed race. And to the Jews in Judah, that was unacceptable. And so you come then to the New Testament and that northern kingdom of a mixed race are the Samaritans that the New Testament talks about. And those are the people that the Jews walk miles out of their ways so they don't go through that part of the country. And they hate each other. And it might be the greatest miracle in this whole thing that those two nations are now reconciled. Those two people now love each other and care for each other and are brought together. And I think about the ways in which we as a church are more, maybe sometimes more interested in what divides us than in Jesus who unites us. Whatever those things may be, Republican, Democrat, Calvinist, Arminian. Pick all the different ways in which the church, divide. we divide ourselves and we judge each other and we think, you know, we think less of other people. Well, the day is coming when all of that will disappear because our focus won't be on us, it'll be on Jesus. And when your focus is on Jesus, 
You can't help but see people as equals and people to be loved. You see people the way Jesus does. It's the kingdom. It seems to me, as we talked last week, that this image of the kingdom to come is an image that we want to embrace as much as we can now. We are called to be agents of the kingdom. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom and God's will is this picture that Isaiah paints for us here. And if that is what is going to be then, then it seems to me that our calling is to try and do as much as we can to make that in this world now. But keep in mind that all of this that happens in that day happens only because of what he says in verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 and following take place because of what takes place in verses 1 to 5. And in verses 1 to 5, he says, a shoot, a branch, out of the root, the stump of Jesse is going to come forth. And he's the one who's going to make all this happen. He's the one that's going to make all this possible. The, the messenger of God, the Messiah, Jesus. And he says, this one who will come will do this because the Spirit of God rests on him. Not temporarily, not for a few days, not for a few moments, not a few circumstances, but his life will be defined by the Spirit. Every part of his being is filled with the Spirit. Every decision is of the Spirit. Every thought is of the Spirit. Every attitude is of the Spirit. And so he comes in the image of God, or as John tells us, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. This is how all this happens. The Spirit rests on him. And because the Spirit rests on him, he has wisdom and counsel and strength and might to carry out the purposes and the plans, the will of God. One of the things I love about this, what he's, how he describes him is verse 3. And he says here that he, he will delight in obedience. I don't think we typically delight in obedience. In fact, I think we tend to think of obedience as a negative word, not a positive word. We have to, we have to teach our children to obey. Because it's not something we want to naturally do. I think we often look at obedience as giving up something that we feel is inherently good in order to do something that, quite frankly, we think is inherently bad. We like what we're doing. I want to keep doing this. I don't want to stop doing this. This is good. This feels good. This looks good. I like this. And I know that ultimately it may lead to destruction, but I'll live with that. And the reason God, God sends the law to Israel, the reason he, he challenges us about how we live, is because without obeying him, we are leading to a life of destruction and death. And God's created design for us is a life that leads to life and flourishing. And everything that God asks his people to do through history and today is to lead us from death to life, from destruction to flourishing. And that's why this one to come delights in obedience because he knows who God is. 
He understands the nature, the character of who God is. And if God asks him to do this, it's because it's in the best interest of him and all of the purposes of God. But until we really believe that God is good and loving and merciful and compassionate, until we believe that God has created us and, is, and, and wants nothing but our best interest, obedience will never be delight. We'll fight and wrestle and struggle continually, just like we do with so many things. It is understanding who God is that makes the difference. And this God is a God of justice and righteousness. Going on from verse 3, he talks about how, how this one to come will make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will, he will give justice to the poor. He will not judge by appearance or make a decision based on hearsay. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Justice and righteousness are in essence the DNA of this one to come because it's the DNA of God. I think when we, tend, when we think about justice and righteousness, we tend to see them as opposite sides of the same coin. We, we see, we think of justice and in terms of the, the social interactions and the, and the way the world operates. And we see righteousness more as the spiritual dimension of the world. And often we treat them as if they are separate. Maybe like a, a circle with a, a line down the middle on one side is righteousness and the other side is justice. And some people are really into justice and some people are really into righteousness and, and we, we even sometimes have arguments about which is more important in the kingdom of God. But I think it, the problem lies with our image of justice and righteousness. I don't think they're things that we separate. I think it's a lot like making a cake. Now, I don't make a lot of cakes. I could. I can read a box just like anybody else can. But, you know, you make a cake from scratch and that's a different thing. When you make a cake from scratch, you have wet ingredients and dry ingredients. And, and it's as if what we're saying is that we're going to get a pan and we're going to put a, a piece of, of material, foil or something down the middle. And on one side, we're going to put the dry ingredients and the other side, the wet ingredients. And then we're going to put that in the oven. I got to be honest with you. That's not a cake I want to eat. I, I don't really want to, to eat that kind of a cake. But that's not what we do anyway, is it? We take the wet and dry ingredients and we dump them in a bowl and we mix them up. And we stir them and mix them until you can't really tell the difference between what's wet and what's dry. And then we take that and we pour it into the pan and we put that in the oven and that's a cake we want to eat. And I think when we talk about the justice and the righteousness of God... We're really talking about the nature and the character of God that is all one. For God to act in justice is for him to act in righteousness. For God to act in righteousness is for him to act in justice. And we can say the same thing about all the other things that we call paradoxes. Grace and truth. Love and wrath. I mean, all of these things, are, are they're all mixed as one in the character of God. And that means... When God acts in justice, he is acting righteously. And when God acts righteously, he is 
acting for justice. And when God acts in grace, he is acting in truth. And when God acts in truth, he is acting in grace. It is all one in the nature and the character of God. And I think that's what God wants for us. That when the Spirit fills us, we just simply respond with a righteous justice. And a righteousness that is just. And so we care about every part of of every person's being. We care about the social structures of the world because we care about people and we see how they are harming and hurting the world. And we introduce people to Jesus so their lives are changed. And all of it is one together. That's the kingdom. And when we talk about justice and righteousness... It doesn't mean that we're ignoring evil. In fact, no one takes evil more seriously than God does. And that's why in this passage, as well as many, many others, we see the judgment of God on Israel, Judah, other nations. Because God understands more than any of us could possibly begin to understand the damage that evil does to us, individually and socially. The hurt, the pain... The agony, the the trouble, all of that is because of evil. And God acts righteously for justice as a response to evil. And he is calling us to do the same thing. We people are so filled with the spirit of Jesus that we, we cannot take evil lightly. What intrigues me about this whole chapter is that all this happens because of a little shoot. A little plant that comes up out of the ground. You know, nothing nothing exciting, nothing extraordinary. Maybe the fact that it comes out of a stump. But you know, if it were me, if I were planting this thing, I think I would want to make the biggest impression I could. I think I would want, if you're talking about trees instead of a little shoot, I want to find the biggest tree I possibly could so that people would stand back and say, wow, awesome. Now that's something to pay attention to. That's something that gets our attention. That's awe-inspiring. Not a little shoot. I mean, none of us... None of us plan our vacations to go to the the Green Shoot National Park somewhere, do we? Right? I mean, nobody does that. But we drive miles out of our way and we plan vacations to go to Sequoia National Park and the Redwoods National Park. We want to go see trees like this because they're impressive and powerful. And yet here is God... Restoring creation through a little shoot. It seems to be the way God loves to work. I mean, the whole Christmas story is completely unexpected. Who would have guessed that when God's going to to change the world, he does it with a little baby. And he does it with a little baby born to the most common parents in the world. And and he does it in such a way that the mother of that baby 
looks to everyone else as if she looks to everyone else as she is a woman who is pregnant and not married. And the shame of that in that culture, in that time. And that and that she and that this couple is takes their has their baby in this little out of the way place of Bethlehem, and the, probably the only witnesses to this birth are animals. And when God says, "Well, we need to tell somebody about this," so let's find the best people we can tell, and they find shepherds who are outcasts. Nobody listens to shepherds. And who would have guessed that visitors, pagan astrologers from the east come. And they're more interested in this baby than the men who know all the prophecies about that baby like the back of their hand. God's unexpected ways. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, it's a word to us about how God wants to use us to impact this world, to be agents of restoration and grace and justice and righteousness. Maybe God is less interested in people who are what we might call world changers and more interested in people like you and me in our everyday lives. I mean, ever so often, God puts his finger on somebody's life and you end up with a, with a Desmond Tutu or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. But most of the time, it's, it's just everyday folk like you and me just living our lives. Trying to live in openness to the Spirit so that when people look at us, they think of Jesus. And we work for justice in every way we can. That's why we're doing this initiative for the refugees. But quite frankly, the last time when we collected our offerings, we got about $3,000. And that was awesome. But it's, it's barely a drop in the bucket for what needs to be done. And in some ways you think, is it really worth it? It's worth it because it's something. It's worth it because God is developing in us hearts to care about people who are exploited and manipulated and uprooted. And every single instance is important to God. And everything we do is important to God. I wonder if sometimes we struggle with that because we don't really feel hope. We, we've just sort of resigned ourselves to the fact that this is the way the world is. It's never going to be different. We know someday is going to come and when that day comes, then, then we'll escape this earth and we'll, we'll finally get to, to be experience the things that God wants to give us. But now, it seems pretty hopeless. Doesn't feel like we're really accomplishing anything. Doesn't seem like a baby's accomplishing much either. Doesn't seem like that that stable in Bethlehem really had any made any difference. There's always hope, 
because we're talking about God here. We're talking about the God who cares and loves and created and whose vision is restoration. And Jesus comes the first time to start this rescue operation. And he comes the second time to fulfill it. And in the meantime, you and I live with hope that through his grace, we can actually be agents that he can use to bring restoration and change and hope to a world of brokenness, pain, loneliness, injustice. So wherever we are, wherever we go, whoever we rub shoulders with, to live with a spirit of openness, to let Christ use us. It's really the call of God in our lives. And to trust that God will do what he says he's going to do. As he does for Israel, as he does for his church through the ages, as he's promised to do now with you and me. Father, we want to thank you for the coming of Christ and for what his coming means for us, for this world. We pray that you'd help us to have hearts that are open to you that we might see you and work in us in just the everyday moments of life. Our hearts, our lives, our actions would reflect Jesus and the glorious vision of your kingdom. We pray this through Christ. Amen.